Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Today we are faced with an overload of information from tweets and emails and texts, uh, from the Internet, from uh, over-the-air sources. It's hard to manage it all. It was hard in the 19th century to manage it, too. Telegraph, the telegram, uh, the, the newspapers, new cheap newspapers, new forms of information flooded that century as well. How did people handle it? One way was to chop it up and paste it in a book in an order of your own choosing. How did people do this during the Civil War era? We'll find out today when we talk with Dr. Ellen Gruber Garvey, author of Writing with Scissors, American Scrapbooks from the Civil War to the Harlem Renaissance, on Civil War Talk Radio. Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite World Talk Radio network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at World Talk Radio and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University here in Greenville, North Carolina, on a beautiful autumn day in November. 2012. But speaking as always just for myself, not for my colleagues in the history department or in the College of Arts and Sciences or the Division of Academic Affairs or any part of East Carolina University or the UNC system, just me. And I know likewise my guest will speak for herself today as we talk about uh, scrapbooks in the 19th century in the Civil War era, particularly. But before uh, getting into that, we'll say a few words about what's coming up on the show. We've got uh, next week, December 7th, uh, not the uh, the date that we'll live in infamy, although I guess December 7th always is that, but uh, our guest will be John Jakes, a uh, famous author of uh, North and South, uh, part of a trilogy of Civil War novels that were uh, extremely popular and have been read by many uh, hundreds of thousands, no doubt. Uh, we'll talk about those next week. Then it'll be time for the winter break. The following week is commencement here at ECU, and I'll be 
busy with other activities at that point, and that will be followed by uh, a few weeks off as we recover and recharge through the winter break. Coming back uh, in January, looks like, uh, I don't have my schedule in front, where'd it go? I believe it's January, well, I won't take a guess, but the uh, second Friday, uh, Michael Weeks will be with us to talk about uh, Civil War travel guides that he's prepared, some extraordinary uh, excellent travel guides, and we'll have another series of interesting guests in the second half of the 2012-13 uh, academic year season here on Civil War Talk Radio. To find out about all of these, as always, go to www.impedimentsofwar.org, and there at the most interesting site on the web, you'll find out what's happening in Civil War Talk Radio uh, scheduling in the weeks ahead, uh, and you'll be able to hear the shows that have been on in weeks behind. There are links to the archive shows at World Talk Radio, so go ahead and find out uh, what's going on there. Of course, all the talk in Civil War land over the last week or two has been about the new movie, Lincoln, uh, Steven Spielberg's movie with Daniel Day Lewis. If you're listening to the show, you've probably already seen the movie or are making plans to see the movie this weekend. If you're downloading this at some point in 2013 or later, uh, you can go rent the movie by this time, probably. It's uh, It'll be interesting to see how opinion shakes out. Uh, I will uh, tip my hand and say I thought it was good. I thought it did a, an extraordinary job trying to tell the historical story. And if anything, it highlighted perhaps the limits one comes up against in trying to do that in cinematic form, that there's only so much uh, you can do, and that this may have uh, uh, may push against it. Uh, you, if you're more faithful to the record, uh, if you use footnoted conversations only, uh, at some point, uh, you can't really make a movie anymore. You're, you're, it's, it's just a documentary, and of course documentaries are constructed too, but you're just... Uh, just limited to what it is uh, that you're, you're saying that it, it's impossible to create a dramatic presentation. So uh, the movie makers cut few corners, some where they had to, but not many. Uh, could you cut less and, and still make a movie? I'm not sure. Anyway, uh, I say go see it. Uh, I recommend it. And I thank the donors to Civil War Talk Radio because I tapped into the PayPal account to buy my movie ticket online and it's a good thing because the show was sold out when I got there and I was able to have a ticket waiting for me so I thank you the listeners for funding my afternoon last week at the movies to see Lincoln well this week uh, we talk about uh, speaking of Lincoln Lincoln kept a scrapbook uh, of the Lincoln Douglas debates uh, cutting out newspaper accounts of those we'll talk about that uh, the topic, when I was first approached about it, sounded unlikely. What do American scrapbooks have to do with the Civil War? But uh, but Lincoln does. So does Sherman. Uh, so do many individuals north and south who kept uh, books of, of, well, we'll find out what they kept. Uh, with our guest, uh, Dr. Ellen Gruber-Garvey joins us today. Dr. Garvey, are you there? Yes, I am. Good welcome to, to the Talk to you, Jerry. Uh, well, welcome to the show. Um uh, that you and I have not met, but uh, uh, I hope it's okay if we go by first names. Uh, sure, of course. Just to uh, 
you are a professor of English at New Jersey City University right. uh, for your day job. Uh, mm-hmm. I guess this is part of your day job, uh, writing books like this. Job. Research. Uh, we, we, we are all in the, the publisher parish uh, world uh, as it is. So uh, how did you come across this, this topic of uh, scrapbooks? Well, I was... Uh my first book was on advertising and magazines in the late 19th century, and I had gotten interested in some scrapbooks that children made of advertising materials. I went to a, a used bookstore in Massachusetts, and the, when the proprietor found out that I was interested in this, she handed me this extraordinary book. It was a book of Puritan sermons called Baxter's, by Baxter called Saints Everlasting Rest. And... I opened up the book, and there was instead of a, a Puritan hellfire sermon, there was a there were a, a bunch of newspaper articles, but they were actually stories pasted onto the pages of this book of sermons. And the um, the first story in it was a feminist story, Mary Wilkins Freeman's Revolt of Mother from the 1880s, uh, in which a woman takes over the barn that her husband was expecting to put cows in, but it's a nicer building than the house they've been living in, so the family all moves in. So I realized that people were actually um, treasuring the stories that mattered to them, and they were put, they were housing them better than their newspapers had ha- housed them, and they were essentially moving them into the barn. They were taking over old books, um, like you know, in, in some cases, collections of sermons. Although more commonly, I discovered um, uh, books that the that Congress would send you for free. Uh, like uh, patent office reports or the agricultural reports, and very commonly during the Civil War, old ledger books. So people would take, because it was a, a free way of making a scrapbook instead of buying a blank book, they could take an old book and repurpose it. And in repurposing it, they shaped it and left us a record of reading and what their reading meant to them. So that's quite different from like reading a diary where we get a sense, you know, somebody's direct experience, but we're reading something about their experience of of reading, of their news of the newspapers that they encountered. And in the civil um that's particularly important in the Civil War, which was such a a time a, an uprush in newspaper reading took over the country, both sides. Everybody wanted to read newspapers to find out what was going on with their loved ones on the battlefield. And it's really the first time in a, that telegraphic news dispatches were available in a big way. So, well, let me let me just interrupt to ask about the, the physical form of these books. So mm-hmm. you, you mentioned some of them are, are taking other books and repurposing them. Mm-hmm. These are then different, uh, just so our listeners have a sense of what kind of books we're talking about. These are books where people are putting in existing printed items. Uh, mm-hmm. I know if I go to, to a, a craft store today, right. there are huge sections for, for scrap bookers, and mm-hmm. scrap booking mm-hmm. has become a verb. Yep. Uh, that's, and so people think of it as putting in uh, you know, souvenirs, uh, mm-hmm. locks of baby hair, uh, uh, written items, uh, all kinds of things seem to go into these books today. Mm-hmm. But the scrapbooks of the 19th century, uh, it sounds like they are more made up of printed material. Oh, yeah. These are, 
Uh, memorabilia books don't really get started till the last couple of decades of the century, and they're more specialized. But basically, um, scrap 19th century scrapbooks are a way of managing information overload, as you hinted earlier. That is, people are reading all these newspapers, and they're they have such a sense of how important these papers are, how important the news that they're reading is, and this is especially true in the Civil War, um, that when when they're you know ex- essentially experiencing the war to some degree as a mediated war, as a war that they understand through media, and they're saving, they're clipping the newspaper and they're pasting down what what matters to them in it. Now that might be because they want to consult it again. That might be just to mark their relationship to it. Um, of course, newspapers then published poetry quite a lot, as well as articles, stories, not very much in the way of, in the daily press, in the way of, of images, um, but but all of these other things that mattered to people. And so the 19th century scrapbooks that, that I discuss in writing with scissors are newspaper clipping scrapbooks. And they're very, they're, they're in one way quite different, in most ways quite different from present-day scrapbooks. That is, they're made up of, entirely public materials they are not so family centered occasionally they but but they can still speak very eloquently of people's lo- of people's inner lives through their through this record of their reading but they're not saving you know records of birthday parties that's not what they're interested in they are interested in in making a repository of the public press remember that newspapers at this time don't have indexes so if you're going to save material, uh, if you're going to save something from the newspaper, you're, if you just save piles of papers, you're never going to be able to find anything again. So many, many people, thousands of people, in fact, clipped the newspaper and, and pasted down what mattered to them. In, a sen- in one sense, though, they do have continuity with the present kind of scrapbooks. And that is, in both case, cases, they, they show us people's desire to save to um, to make an archive, to make a record, and that this is widely distributed. Everyone can do it. So they have that that in common, the desire and the desire to make um, to make to make a record of who of, of of their own something about themselves in the world. And in the nineteenth century case it's more about the reading and what that meant. In the present it's more pictures and, and records of family events. This is a little outside, I suppose, scrapbooks, but the, uh, as you were talking there, I was thinking about the museum collection I, I worked in formerly, the, the Lincoln Museum of Fort Wayne, Indiana. Uh, one of the things in the collection was Mary Lincoln's uh, Carte de Visite album. And what was interesting was that uh, looking at, at, at albums of, of, of the small photographs, the the, the baseball card-sized pictures of that era, was that people put their own family members in, but they also put in pictures of senators and mm-hmm. generals and, and public figures. And it sounds like you're saying that trend is taken even further with the scrapbooks, where they're, they're not about the family at all, but about the, the public world that the person lives in. Is, right. is that an accurate thing? Yeah, is, is that accurate? Yes. Um, they They might include material directly about about the person, you know, if, if they're an obituary of a friend or a uh, an article about oneself. I mean, Charles Sumner's scrapbooks, for example, are full of, of uh, articles about him or things that he's saving up to use in speeches or, in one case, a very uh, a parody of his speeches. 
as being extremely long. Um, but even public people like like uh, Sumner would be also including other, you know, material that they might use for other purposes, not just about them. Um, Sometimes, and, and there's that sense of stretching beyond. I mean, thinking your mention of the carte de visite photos reminds me of um, one book, kind of mixed-use book that that Henry Ingersoll Bowditch made. He was a Boston abolitionist who uh, then worked with the Sanitary Commission to, to build the ambulance corps during the Civil War, both before and after his son was killed on the battlefield. After his son was killed. Um, he he made a number of kinds of albums. One of them I, I write about uh, in more at more length, which is his uh, album, his Waif's uh, album of collected poetry that moved him after his son's death. But he also made an album of um, that that's handwritten materials and some pasted in obituaries of the uh it says soldiers of the of mass who died of Massachusetts who died in the civil war it actually means officers but he managed to get carte de visite photos of men of many of them which is to say his, the families were willing to give them because these were not public people for whom you could buy the carte de visite in the, at the uh at a studio um, prominent people um uh, for prominent people it was possible to buy uh, you know a celebrity photograph but Ordinary people, families would have them. Um, those don't generally show up, though, in ordinary uh, newspaper clipping scrapbooks. They're somewhat sequestered into albums, specialized albums for photographs, for the most part. So, they these these albums, the the scrapbooks have primarily, as you said, a public use. Now, before the Civil War, uh, you mentioned sort of a precursor to the scrapbook was a commonplace book where mm-hmm. people. Uh, well, how, what what is the difference between a commonplace book and a scrapbook, and and why do well, they go over, out of fashion? Yeah, they're overlapping forms, and they and sometimes you find both things in the same book. Commonplace books uh, still exist, and they are books in which people copy out passages that strike them in their reading that they want to save, and they're generally more literary. Uh, you know, more for literary purposes than factual note-taking, although that's also possible. Um, and then there, the idea of them, and they go back to the Renaissance, was that you would then have something to write with. You would be able to quote from somebody um, to begin your essay to, to, get, to get going or when you were stuck. And that, in fact, other people's writing was probably better than yours. And so you ought to have this repository of other people's work to draw from. Um, by the early to mid a bit mid 19th century it becomes much more common to cut up newspapers newspapers have gotten quite cheap and why should you tediously copy something out when you could perfectly well cut and paste it so so sometimes you see commonplace books that kind of morph into scrapbooks as they go and then they then um, or, you know or have a bit of a mix but mostly they sort of tip over and turn into to scrapbooks so that allowed people to kind of <laughs> commonplace on an industrial scale. They're really, you know, hacking up the entire paper and then they're they're putting down long swaths of it into their scrapbooks. Um, and with a commonplace book, you can be quite certain that someone actually read what they pasted in. With a scrapbook, it's a little bit less clear. Um, but 
but they do. But people continue now to make commonplace books for mo- most much of the same reason: the idea that you would want to learn from somebody else's writing, that you want to save a line or a poem or a stanza or a, a paragraph that struck you and that that you want to keep for some reason. I wonder uh, in. Recent months, they announced that the the public schools here in North Carolina would not be teaching cursive uh, mm. writing in, uh, any longer, and I imagine that's happened in other states as well. So one wonders how our how our descendants will will do their commonplace books. Uh, at least their calligraphy won't be as as nice as in the past. Um, well, many well, they, often have, it, they've migrated it, to, the, to the web. There are many websites of com, of you know, favorite quotes or commonplace websites. So, I mean, I think that's already been going on for quite a while. True. The a number of, of interesting, uh, well, that's wrong, many important people, many interesting people have left scrapbooks that we'll talk about, but also some mm-hmm. recognizable names. What we'll do now is take a short break. We'll come back in just a minute and talk more about uh, some of the, the major figures in the Civil War era, uh, who kept scrapbooks and why they did and what was in them. That's what we'll talk about in just a moment. When we return, our guest today is Ellen Gruber Garvey. She is the author of Writing with Scissors, American Scrapbooks from the Civil War to the Harlem Renaissance. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop take world talk radio on the go and listen anywhere get our mobile app for iphone blackberry or android at the apple itunes app store blackberry app world or android market can you think of anybody who does not want a better life and to be a better person think about that for a second almost everyone wants to be better but how does one go about doing that one thing that is making people better every week is tuning in to the Self-Improvement Show with Dr. Irene Conlon. All real change comes from within, but many of us don't know where to find the information or guidance we need to make the changes that bring about the improvement. Most of us don't know how to work within. Listen Thursdays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern on World Talk Radio Variety. World Talk Radio presents a new kind of health awareness talk show, the Sharon Kleina Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. Show host Sharon Kleina interviews leading scientists to discover how each of us can become proactive in protecting our personal health environment in an increasingly unhealthy world. Every show offers new information that could save your life. The Sharon Kleina Hour is health from an environmental perspective, your ultimate source for a personal environmental lifestyle. Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Ellen Gruber Garvey author of Writing with Scissors, American Scrapbooks from the Civil War to the Harlem Renaissance. We talked in our first segment a little bit about what uh, scrapbooks looked like in the Civil War era, collections uh, of clippings from newspapers, more so than the modern uh, scrapbooks you'll find at a craft store 
where people put in souvenirs and pictures and all kinds of things. Uh, these are, are much more public-focused documents. The uh, uh, Ellen, when, when I got your book and started looking at it, I, my first thought was to try to figure out what what is this going to say about scrapbooks that, that will, will really work in the context of the Civil War era. Um, what, uh, well, as, as you and I referred to a moment ago in the first uh, segment about the publish or perish phenomenon, uh, we all parse things finer and finer looking for topics to write about that no one else has done. And uh, I will admit it, an initial thought was, you know, scrapbooks. Well, let's see. Uh, but your analogy to the Internet, uh, as we just ended the last segment with, uh, is really intriguing here. We are faced with more information than we can handle today, and we use all kinds of uh, filing systems and electronic filing systems to handle it. You argue that the 19th century faced the same flood of information mm-hmm. uh, on a different scale, and the scrapbook is a reaction to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, can, can you elaborate on that? Yeah, there is so much the sense in ni- the 19th century. There's article after article where people say, you know, we how can we keep up with the winged press? It's just too, you know, it flies too quickly past us. It's overwhelming. It's too much. And the only way we can keep up with it is making scrapbooks so we can find things again. And there's the sense also of sharing through scrapbook making, which is kind of, an, uh, you know, very similar to uh, what we see with Facebook or with blogs, with blog roles on a blog. That is something where people are already, are, are not only reading, but they're pointing out they're reading to other people even as, as they go with that. So, um, so somebody like, um, well, Henry Ingersoll Bowditch's scrapbook that I mentioned earlier, he made a scrapbook of poetry that he read in the, in the newspaper after his son's death in 1863 um, at, at Kelly's Ford. And his, he, he, it's an interesting scrapbook. He made it 12 years after the son's death, but he had saved the clippings earlier. And it's very clear from the level of annotation in the scrapbook, and it's an unusual level of annotation, that he meant to show, to, for other people to read this. He explains why he saved particular poems. And he says something about what they meant to him. He also, um, you know, it's a way of articulating his feelings. So although he's using the public press, he's using material anyone else could have seen, he's creating um, a, a rather per- personal record, a quite personal record, of his, his feelings, his grief at losing his son. And that is something that he then has available to share a couple of the, a number of the African American scrapbook makers that I looked at, uh, working for the most part after the Civil War, although one of them starts during, before and during it, um, was a, uh, that's, that's Joseph W. H. Cathcart, who was a janitor in Philadelphia. He seems to have been bo- born free. Um, and he made something like 150 scrapbooks, quite he- heavy and, and large, that he, showed on his shelf, and people could come in and, and look at them. A number of reporters wrote about him. A friend of his, William Henry Dorsey, made over about 400 scrapbooks, which displayed and shared in a museum, in a room in his house, which he referred to as Dorsey's Museum. Again, sharing African-American history 
that he had pulled from the mainly mainly from the white press. The, the daily press was all white owned, uh, and that was the more voluminous press. The uh, the black press was more scattered, and uh, you know just didn't pr- pr- provide that love the large number of clippings that he stocked his scrapbooks with. So that sense of reading and sharing at the same time, of sorting out and making and creating value from what seems like overwhelming piles of paper or even what seemed like waste paper, that's something that I think we share with with the 19th century scrapbook makers. That is the sense of um, dealing with with information with a flood of printed matter, or in our sense, on our case, digital matter, and figuring out how to find it and reuse it again. More scrapbook makers. I'm sorry. Go on. I would say it's interesting how we use you know analogs to scrapbooking in in electronic information uh, mm-hmm. storage and retrieval. You know, cutting and pasting uh, exactly. today doesn't mean actually that's how you make a scrapbook with, with scissors and paste, mm-hmm. but. Uh, but we we do the same thing electronically. L- let me ask, as I said, I would do so about uh, some people who uh, famous people who who kept scrapbooks during the Civil War era. Uh, mm-hmm. who, who of our listeners heard of who might have done that? Well, Charles Sumner turns out to have been a, a major scrapbook maker. I'm not sure if he made them during the Civil War. The ones I've seen at Harvard are are from somewhat later. Um, well, actually, no. I'm sorry, that's not true because there's, there's, he's, he has something up until uh, the, the caning, um, and then there's gap, and then he has more after that. Um, but he, he's mainly he's he's um, the scrapbooks themselves are interesting for the kinds of variety of stuff he saved. Uh, Brander Matthews, who wrote about scrapbooks a bit, an English professor at Columbia. Uh, claimed that men and women made very different kinds of scrapbooks, and he said, you know, statesmen make important scrapbooks, they save material for their speeches, and and somebody like Sumner has a wonderfully well-organized scrapbook that he can draw on for speeches. But then if you go look at it, well, it's a hodgepodge. It's the same kind of hodgepodge that, that Brander Matthews complains women make, that he says, oh, women just save, you know, household hints and jokes. But that's sort of what Sumner has in his scrapbook as well. But he's also saving material, and he's saving transcriptions of his talks. Because after all, if somebody spoke extemporaneously, um, you know, reading from five lines on the back of an envelope and made a longer speech out of it, then they don't have a record of it. So um, if, if somebody transcribed it, then that might be something they would then save in their scrapbook. That's something that Lincoln did in the Lincoln in the record of his debates with Douglas. Um, but to continue with Sumner for a second before I leave him, um, he's criticized in, in the postbellum press. He's, there are sort of jo- a standing joke, and I would love to find a picture of this, of him that he's always hauling out his scrapbook and reading from it on the Senate floor because he used it to save information, that, that you know, statistics or accounts of things that he wanted to, give, that he wanted to speak about or to... Um, to make legislation about, and that becomes, you know, a repository for him of of information, of up to date, up to the minute. Uh, a news so it, it, it's his, his 
uh, I was going to say Blackberry, but I think that's already obsolete. Uh, it was, right. it was uh, <clears throat> he pulls out his, his scrapbook and has everything at hand there. Uh, you mentioned Lincoln, who uh, uh, kept a scrapbook of the Lincoln-Douglas debates. That was a very focused uh, uh, piece, was it not? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can see it online, actually. Uh, I don't have the web address in front of me, but if you Google it, you would find it. Um, and it's particularly interesting in that what it show, one of the things it shows us about the partisan press and how how people would work with that, that is, Somebody came, would come in and transcribe these debates, different reporters from different newspapers. So when Lincoln went to save his side of the speech, he saved, uh, of, of the talk, of the debates, he saved that from the Republican papers. If, when he saved Douglas's side of this speech, he saved it from the Democratic papers, assuming that each partisan paper would get their own person, their own man's speech right, and couldn't be trusted for the other side. So that's, that's an interesting um, light on that. I, I don't know if Lincoln himself made this scrapbook or if he had it made for him, but it's very common for speakers and, and writers to have say to to have such scrapbooks and and any kind of public performer as well. Actors um, kept scrapbooks because they made, these performances are ephemeral. The speech or the the, the theatrical performance. And how else do you have a record of it? Is but what was in the newspaper, and that becomes a way. Well, it becomes a way for actors to show that they've actually done a, you know, performed here and there, if they have a scrapbook of, of their, of, of uh, newspaper notices. But also again for speakers, so uh, both giving a record, a transcription of the speech, or a record of it of the, that they actually were there and, and did speak. And writers, too, of course, also didn't have um, Xerox machines or even carbon paper. There was a way of making a copy, but it was pretty cumbersome. And so when their writing showed up in newspapers, they say, you know, or they published an article, then they saved it and pasted that down so that, again, so that they could have copies of that. So, um, now, one of the things about the, uh, uh, about these newspaper pieces when when it's a speaker giving a talk uh, the, you know, Lincoln having the, the clippings collected from his his debates with Douglas there clearly enough uh, everybody knows who's speaking it's either Lincoln or Douglas and, and being transcribed by someone but if you're simply looking at articles and most of these many of these articles you know people clipped out are anonymous this mm. got me thinking about the uh, again my my museum experience Involve one of the the great research tools we had at the Lincoln Museum in Fort Wayne, uh, which is now the copy is now in the, the uh, John Carter Brown Library, and another. Uh, I think there's one in Springfield as well. It is what we call the vertical file, which was a row of uh, 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 file cabinets with hanging folders. Uh, and topics alphabetized, and there were, mm-hmm. I don't know how many drawers, you know, two dozen drawers, in which the people who had run this museum since 1928 had clipped or collected from people who mailed to them uh, clippings, anything to do with Abraham Lincoln. And they would clip mm-hmm. it and drop it in the vertical file. And this mm-hmm. became a, a unique and powerful uh, resource. Michael Burlingame used it uh, uh in his his biography of Abraham Lincoln, others have used it, uh, mm-hmm. but he was more enthusiastic about it than others. 
the drawback to the vertical file was many of these clippings were anonymous. And to a trained historian, that would then render them worthless. You wouldn't quote an anonymous clipping in a vertical file for the truth of the matter in the article. And you, this likewise, if you found in a scrapbook, let's say in a uh, in an archive, somebody had clipped and, and pasted in something about the Battle of Shiloh, you wouldn't cite that as evidence of anything that happened at the Battle of Shiloh, but you would cite it as evidence of what people thought was worth remembering about the mm-hmm. Battle of Shiloh. Exactly, that's right. And yeah. So, so and how does this anonym, anonymity uh, fun- function in the scrapbooks you looked at? Well, I think that's an important question. Thank you. Um, Two things. One is vertical files are kind of a, an outgrowth or a development past scrapbooks, and libraries uh, and historical societies kept scrapbooks through the 19th century and until there was this phenomenal technological innovation of the vertical file, and they were very excited about that. So the possibility of just of, of not having to glue things down was freeing and offered other possi- offered possibilities. But it, lo- it it it's also a loss in in that we don't any longer see what order someone put something in or what you know what they thought belonged with what so there's a um, a piece that's lost when when people move to the freer form of the vertical file of the file drawer um, the anonymity uh, you know I'm looking I'm I'm not a historian so I my interests are somewhat different from historians that is I'm interested in how people read what they make of their reading and what it what it says to them. So I read these scrapbooks as as constructed books, essentially, not written with with a pen, but written with scissors. And uh, anonymity in the newspapers, of course, of course, is quite conventional in the ninth century. Most articles are not signed, and it was very easy for newspaper m- many article many articles, poems, all sorts of matter w- went through what was called the exchange system. That is. Newspaper editors would read through a whole pile of other newspapers that they received, that they received for free by exchange with other editors. The, the post office was willing to send them all for free because that was seen as improving uh, the press of the nation and, and make, making for a better citizenry. So the exchange editor would read through these, these uh, newspapers, clip out what they thought was useful, and send it around again in their own newspaper very often. They would drop even if there was a name of an author on it. They would drop that. They were more. They might. They were much more likely to credit the previous newspaper that had published it. Um, sometimes, but at the same time, people reading the paper want to know it, and there's a desire, especially with poems and especially with first-person poems, uh, poems written in the voice of someone, to to believe that there was an actual person behind it that they could identify. And one thing that I found that was very interesting was how this anonymity worked in relation to Civil War poetry. Um, and there are two, direct, two things that I would, would say about that. One of them is that there are a number of poems that circulated in both the Union and the Confederate press that spoke about dying soldiers, for example. Um, the, uh, some, there's a famous poem... A now famous, somewhat famous poem called uh, "Somebody's Darling," some safe in these white washed walls, um, about a, a, a young man dying in a hospital. Now, it, when it pu- was published, 
and circulated in the North, it was assumed to be about a Union soldier. And in fact, even uh, Garrison's Liberator uh, reprinted it without specifying, you know, but it was assumed, if you were reading it in the Liberator, that surely it's talking about a soldier on the Union side. Uh, after the Civil War, it was re- revealed to be by Marie Lacoste of, of, George, of Savannah, and then it got claimed as a, like a, as a Confederate poem, as under, understood and seen as, you know, honoring uh, both sides in a sense, but understood at that point, post, post-war, as understood as the possibility that people had a lot in common. So uh, there are other poems that fall so into also that. Lost its, uh, attrib- well, it didn't have an attribution to begin with. It was called In the Hospital, and it's, uh, it begins, I lay me down to sleep with little thought or care whether... Um, Sorry, whether <laughs> something, something here uh-huh. or there. Anyway, it's about um, it's it's a young it's it's in the voice of of the soldier dying, and he's there's the sense of resignation. He's he's uh, willing to die. He's waiting to see whether well the the last verse where he's waiting to see whether he's going to die gets lopped off when it gets recirculated. It's, it was originally called Mortally Wounded. It was retitled in the hospital. As I lay me down to sleep with little thought or care, whether my waking find me here or there. A bowing burdened head, only too glad to rest, unquestioning, unquestioning upon a loving breast. And it goes on in that vein. Um, now, you know, Drew Faust has written about the, um, in the Republic of, this Republic of Suffering, about soldiers... Uh, soldiers themselves embracing common cultural understandings or ideals of the good death, of dying, um, uh, you know, that they should be resigned, that they should be uh, saved, and um, and that perhaps they would be surrounded by pictures of family and so forth. It would create that sense of, of dying well. And this poem also enunciates that idea of dying well. This is a resi- soldier who's resigned to his death. Now, it was actually written by a clergyman's wife in, living in Queens, New York. But when it made its way into the newspaper, because it was originally published anonymously, and so it went, made its way around, it developed two different lines of who wrote it. One was attra- attributed to, it, it, it often has the line, found, line sound under a pillow of a soldier dying at um, at Fort at um, Port Royal, and then it also got attributed to a, a Massachusetts soldier. So, and not, not a specific one, but given given soldier S with a line after his name. Um, so that idea that that it was written by an actual individual soldier who then left it under his pillow when he died was so compelling to editors and to readers that that's the way they wanted to see it recirculated. So the, what I call the anonymity function is this, this ability of, of poems, of works, to kind of gather their claims to who made them. And that in itself is telling us quite a lot about what readers wanted from the consoling poetry that they read, what they wanted to know, what if they wanted to feel about what was going on for these soldiers that, that who mattered so much to them. We will take another break here, come back and talk more with Ellen Gruber-Garvey discussing the uh, 
function of scrapbooks and the material they collected in the Civil War era. Her book is called Writing with Scissors, American Scrapbooks from the Americans from the Civil War to the Harlem Renaissance. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. Best-selling authors, find tantalizing new books, learn the latest healthy living tips, and be inspired to coach yourself to success on Star Style. Be the star you are every Thursday from 3 to 4 p.m. Pacific Time on World Talk Radio. The Oprah of the Airwaves, Cynthia Bryan, and her health hero daughter, Heather Brittany, fire up the airwaves with upbeat, positive, life-changing talk radio. It's the Power Hour on Star Style. Be the star you are. Thursdays from 3 to 4 p.m. Pacific on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Come play with us. Listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Ellen Gruber Garvey, author of Writing with Scissors American Scrapbooks from the Civil War to the Harlem Renaissance. I keep wanting to say edited by instead of written by because uh, it's it makes me think of scrapbooks and, and is a scrapbook edited or written? Uh, but the nature of authorship is exactly the point here that uh, these people literally, literally are writing their books in the 19th century with, uh, with scissors by taking out items from the popular press, uh, and other sources, but primarily newspapers and compiling books out of them. We mentioned, uh, it, you mentioned uh, your background is is not in history, and yet you do talk about uh, an important historical source, uh, Frank Moore's Rebellion Record, which mm-hmm. many listeners right. to the show have have uh, researched it at some point. A multi volume set, uh, and in fact, Rebellion Record really is a giant scrapbook. Is, yes. is that correct? It said so at one point. Uh, uh, describe that that work, if you would. Well, it's a compendium. You know, he set out to basically do a, give a, uh, create a digest of the press of about the Civil War as it as it emerged. And he started it fairly early. I, you, you probably know the date better than I do. I don't have it in front of me. Um, and it was issued, I believe, quarterly or no monthly, and then into quarterly and then yearly volumes. And basically, it was a, he promised that it was a way of keeping up with with the press and with this important historical moment. And that is, is 
that sense of living through history is something that's quite passionately present in so many of the scrapbooks, that sense that what's, it's not just that you want to save the inf- that they wanted to save the information, uh, which they did, but they wanted to save their experience of reading the information in the newspaper. And that was, you know, a piece of what was, what, what, uh, Frank Moore offered in, in offering this rebellion record. But, you know, it's surprising how, how limited it is. I mean, it's immense, but at the same time, it doesn't nearly have, have anything. I mean, that, the poem that I just mentioned before that was quite popular, made the rounds of the newspapers, doesn't show up in the rebellion record. So, you know, what's, so, so those, those ideas, those, the question of what's popular, what's, what, what's entering into people's lives is, is a mix. I mean, his was one version of that, but the scrapbooks are many, many others, and uh, show us something about what what ordinary people did with their reading, as opposed to what newspaper, what what publishers did with their reading. Um, so, but the compendium, I mean, it is certainly well worth browsing, and it's online now, so you can do that more easily. It, it is a, a a fascinating collection. Now. He used uh, had access to newspapers uh, from the north. Mm-hmm. You point out that there's a difference in northern and southern scrapbooks collected during the war. Yes. Uh, how do mm-hmm. they differ? Well, a basic way is is the materials that that is um, northern scrapbooks are are just, you know reveling in an abundance of printed matter. That is, they have. Uh, you know, the, all the newspapers continue to publish. There's, yes, it's true they're censored, but they're they're just you know still spinning out the stuff. So there were fewer southern newspapers to begin with, and then of course they ran into trouble with paper shortages, and there was a blockade. You know, as you know, the, the blockade of course kept northern newspapers out, and that had been you know, they had just sort of routinely relied on some of that before. But the paper shortages became quite severe, and that shows up as well in the scrapbooks themselves. That is, one scrapbook maker complains, you know, I have plenty of clippings I would use, but uh, I haven't got another book to put them in. And other people, you know, you can see that also in one amazing scrapbook that I looked at that's at Duke University, the um, Solomon's scrapbook, which is uh, 480-odd pages, um, but at the end of it, she, I think it's a woman, um, or the library thing, and the library thinks it's a woman, um, goes back and starts pasting over other, other articles because there's no more space at the end. So that, that shortage, that, that world of, 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 um, of fewer resources is certainly very, is physically present in scrapbooks, very dramatically so. And, um, you also mentioned, and I thought this was very interesting, that northern scrapbooks tend to be uh, sequential, that, that somebody starts mm-hmm. at the first page, paste stuff in, next day, turn the page, paste more stuff in. Uh, and so when you read them, you do get a, a narrative flow of events in chronological mm-hmm. order. And you saw something different in southern scrapbooks. Yes. Well, I think this has to do, I mean, I, I was thinking about why this is true, and to some degree, I think it's that uh, that is partly the reflection of the material situation. That is, if Solomon's was receiving, you know, got got some newspapers one day when they came out, then well, they had to go around. They had to make the rounds of the rest of her family, or they had to go out back out to whoever lent them to her uh, before she could cut them up again. So, 
she at various points gets the same um, she seems to be fall- very interested in a particular battle uh, with General Beauregard uh, featured in it, and she clips that same news of that same battle over and over again. So it appears, you know, in one section, and then 50 pages later, there's the same battle again. Now, I I think that's to some degree a, ref- a reflection of the material conditions of wartime and what newspapers she got and what other demands there were for newsprint. But also, it, it emerges as a kind of recursiveness, a going back constantly to the best to to create a kind of ideal newspaper, um, to create the newspaper that she would like to see with the Confederate victories repeated over and over, the same one. You know, so she saves the same one. Um, she also, I mean, the, the scrapbook also kind of gives gives a sense of her changing attitudes towards towards the enslaved people. I, I wrote about this a bit in the Disunion blog in the New York Times recently. That is, she saves articles early in the war. She saves articles and poems where black people refuse to be freed or say that they, you know, they'll wait for heaven um, to, for freedom and no, 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 they don't want to leave their masters. Um, and, you know, articles, they say that as well. And, um, you know, historians have noticed this, but what I realized as I'm paying attention to the book as a book, as a created object, is that those sort of drop off. She has very few of those by the end, and what she has much more of is articles about scary black, about black people with knives dripping blood or rapists, and all of those, those new versions of what what enslaved people might actually be thinking, you know, really start to show up by the end of the scrapbook or the, the idea that they're dangerous and, and frightening people that then need to be suppressed in other ways um, become, become part of that record that she's making. And the record is, of course, she's cutting it from the newspaper. She has, she's working only with what's in the newspaper, but she's choosing because those weren't the only articles she could have chosen. I mean, there were other versions of... You know, she could have continued more of the um, loyal black people stories or have had the, uh, you know, she, there were many other possibilities. But that's, that's a strain that emerges as, as the war goes on. And it gives us a, a peek into what um, a loyal Confederate might be thinking about, about slaves, about the slaves. So, you know, it's almost... I thought it was interesting also that, that uh, in the post-war era, you referenced several scrapbooks you encountered where ledger books, as you pointed out, were reused. In some cases, uh, southern plantation ledger books where people pasted over uh, the evidence of, of slave management, of, of the bookkeeping of slavery. Uh, and, yeah. uh, you know, would, would, do you suppose they were consciously trying to expunge that or were they just using the, the paper on hand? It's very hard to figure this out. You know, it's a level, there's a limit to mind reading. I've seen <laughs> two such um, scrapbooks. One of them is less, I'm sure, less deliberate. It's, but on the other hand, well, it's it's a plantation ledger which contains records of and their sale prices and other things about them. Um, and in the 1920s, it became a child scrapbook, and it's pasted over with pictures of baseball players and. Of movies of, of a movie poster, so now on the one hand, that's uh, that's a child just sort of randomly 
choosing where to put things on the paper, although it's an old enough child to be cutting things out quite nicely. But it's also an adult's choice to say, this is something you can go play with. We don't want to save this. We don't want to know about this. So it's it's making it available to be destroyed. That That's an adult choice. Someone in the family did that. The other one is, is more interesting and complicated. It's uh, from a South Carolina woman, and she's, um, let's see, she lost her brother in the Civil War, and then um, her, and she's using, she uses a ledger that was used by her, her father's business, but it includes enumerations of slaves, and he, her parents, at least her father is dead by the, by the 1870s, and she pastes it over with clippings, you know, household hints and things like that, and she puts more of those, she covers the pages that have the slave enumerations more thoroughly and fully than she did the other pages that where that doesn't isn't so. So there is a sense of her covering that over. There is a sense of her maybe not hiding it so much as saying enough. And it's interesting too that the household I, that the the um, clippings she does cover it with are often credited by exchange to northern newspapers. So again, there may be an editorial comment there. You know, just as the scrapbook I mentioned at the beginning, the book of Puritan sermons covered over with um, stories of, well, about domestic life or, or even a feminist story certainly suggest somebody's making an editorial comment. I have enough, I've had it with these Puritan <laughs> sermons, and I really want something else in my life. Um, that's also suggested in these ledger negotiations, and I would love to see more of them and find out more about what, what people did. I only found the two examples. Well, there are many other interesting examples cited in this book. Um, I, in discussing it ahead of time with my mother, who volunteers at the Gross Point Historical Society in Michigan, mm. uh, she pointed out that she clips, as for many years, clipped uh, relevant newspaper articles. Nowadays, however, they just scan them in, and uh, they, you don't have to keep the clippings anymore. But I uh, assured her that it's the function of clipping. It's identifying what's important from the newspaper that is the historian's mm-hmm. function. And that doesn't go away just because you could scan the whole paper, but then it would be useless to a historian to find the relevant article. So uh, the the world of uh, these things uh, continues uh, to this day. <clears throat> the The value of... Uh, scrapbooks remains and the information remains and for those who want to know about how it worked in the 19th century you'll want to get a copy of Writing with Scissors, American Scrapbooks from the Civil War to the Harlem Renaissance by Ellen Gruber Garvey and Ellen, thank you for being on the show today Thank you, Cherry Great talking with you And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio (music) 